Matthew chapter 17, on page 984, let's have God's word before us and then let's ask God to be with us by his spirit and, and tell us what he has on his mind for us today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that we're not left to stumble about in the dark, wondering uh, how you see this world and, and how you see our lives. Lord, thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. Lord, make the, the reading and hearing of your word and reflecting on it the very bedrock of our lives. And we pray that you would use this, this few moments now to teach us more of yourself and to change us more and more into the people you want us to be. Amen. There's quite a bit of stuff in these recent chapters that we've been looking at in Matthew's Gospel about the identity of Jesus. Some of the guys closest to him are really beginning to work out who Jesus is. So in chapter 16, we learned of Peter's great confession in Caesarea Philippi. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then last week in chapter 17, Graham helped us to think about the transfiguration. And we learned about how Jesus was on a mountain. He, he shone there before his disciples to see, but a voice spoke from heaven, God the Father, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Who is Jesus? He's God's son. Peter saw it and the Father confirms it. I want to begin at the end of our passage this morning with the wee chunk that's there because I think it's again about the identity of Jesus. After their trip up north, Jesus' disciples have come back home to their base in Capernaum on Lake Galilee. And the temple tax collectors come and they ask Peter, doesn't your master, your teacher, pay the temple tax? Now there's a standard tax here. Um, the, the two drachma tax collected by temple authorities, every Jew was required to pay it. So there's nothing very unusual about their request. They're, they're keen to see that Jesus would pay his tax just like anyone else. When he's put on the spot, Peter immediately defends Jesus and he says, yes, he, he does pay his temple tax. Matthew records a, a fascinating conversation that Jesus then has with Peter. Jesus asked Peter, from whom do the kings of earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answers. Then, says Jesus, the sons are exempt. Jesus is making the point that he's under no obligation to pay a tax regarding his father's temple. Although he's not under that obligation, he goes ahead and he pays the tax. He says he doesn't want to, to cause offense. If the temple tax collectors knew who Jesus was, they wouldn't be coming looking for two drachma from him. Maybe I could uh, capture Jesus' argument in more contemporary terms. Do you think Malcolm Glazer's sons pay for tickets when they go to watch Man United at Old Trafford? I don't think so. 
Do you think Richard Branson's kids pay to fly Virgin Atlantic? Probably not. What about the Bill Gates family? Do you think they paid for their copy of Office 2007, which they use on their home PC? I don't think so. When your dad owns the whole show, you don't pay your way. When the whole thing belongs to your father, everything by rights belongs also to you. This, this wee story, this wee scenario, it's another identity scenario. If those guys, those temple tax collectors knew who Jesus was, they wouldn't be coming with the handout looking for two drachma. Friends, it's, it's equally important that you and I get it right about the identity of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. Peter confessed it and the Father confirmed it. If we have any misunderstandings about who Jesus is, then we're going to get a lot of other things wrong too. If we get it wrong about who Jesus is, then we're going to get it wrong about why he came into this world. We're going to misunderstand what that means for us. The Bible's very clear about all of this, and we saw it a few weeks ago. Jesus is the Son of God. He came into the world to save us from our sin. And he is our rescuer who calls us now to be his disciples, his followers. That's who Jesus is. That's why he came. And that's what it means for us. On Tuesday evening of this week, we're going to go out and meet some of our closest neighbors here in Ballyhackamore. We're going to learn about the real needs of this community so that we can begin to make a real response. And that's an exciting time, but also a very daunting one. I wonder, have you thought through the full implications of what we're doing here? I mean, what happens if real people with real problems start to come to us looking for real help? What happens if that's the scenario? And by the way, that's not a hypothetical question. In the last few weeks, we've had one person coming to see us here at the church needing help to pay their their grocery bill. And we've been in a position to do some small things to help. Just this week, I met up with a person who contacted me because their home life and their domestic context had become entirely intolerable and they're in desperation and they want help. There's nothing hypothetical here. What happens if real people with real problems begin to approach us looking for real help? Well, real people approach Jesus and they find real help. We've seen that many times throughout the Gospels, uh, in our studies in Matthew's Gospel in particular. And we see it again here this morning. A father comes to Jesus and he asks him to heal his son 
who has seizures and is suffering greatly. He says he often falls into the fire or into water. We might say that he suffers from some sort of seizures, some form of epilepsy, that he lacks uh, motor control and that his life is in danger. I want you to notice a few things just about this as we go. It's interesting that the, the father comes to Jesus believing that Jesus can help him. He's maybe heard about the healings that Jesus has done, the lives that Jesus has changed in in that community. So he expects Jesus to be able to help him. What's more surprising maybe is that the same guy had expected that Jesus' disciples could help him. Matthew tells us that in verse 16. Now it might seem strange to us that this father should approach Jesus' disciples and expect them to help But actually, that was the most natural thing in the world for this guy to do. You see, he understood how discipleship worked. Disciples are people who spend time with their master and learn from their master how to become like their master and do the same things that their master does. So if Jesus has a reputation for healing people, then it's absolutely valid to approach the disciples of Jesus and expect them to be able to heal. It wasn't just this man who expected Jesus' disciples to be able to heal. Jesus expected it too. Jesus had given them power to do just this kind of thing. Flick back a few pages. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. This is a moment where Jesus is sending the fellows out. Matthew 10, verse 1. Jesus sends them to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Look down to verse 8. He instructs them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. Jesus has given them exactly the power that they need for this incident, which presents itself in our passage today. So the man expects Jesus to be able to heal it, or sorry, the disciples to be able to heal his son. Jesus expects his disciples to be able to do it. Even the disciples themselves expected to be able to do this. Look at verse 19. After Jesus exercises the demon and heals the boy, the disciples ask, why, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we drive it out? They're genuinely surprised. You see, they know that Jesus has given them this power. They've maybe even used it before. It's quite possible that they have driven out demons and that they have have seen the kind of healings that we're talking about. Why couldn't they bring real help to this real person in this very real need? Jesus gives his reason in verse 20. Because you have so little faith. Fellas, you didn't believe that I would work through you. This guy came to you for healing and you thought it was all down to you. You thought that everything depended on you, on your skills and your abilities. You forgot that everything depends on me. You forgot to depend on me. You couldn't heal this guy. Because you'd so little faith. 
it's reminiscent of a situation which we looked at a, a few weeks ago when Peter tried walking on water. Do you remember that in Matthew chapter 14? Jesus was walking on the water of Lake Galilee in the dead of night. And he came to his disciples in their fishing boat. And he invited Peter to come out to him on the water. Matthew tells us that Peter got out of the boat. Guys, let's pause there for a moment. We'll just pray for Jillian here who isn't feeling well. Father God, we thank you that you uh, love us and watch over us and you know every bit of what's going on in our lives better than we do ourselves. Lord, we pray that you'd be with Jillian just now and watch over her. Amen. Jesus' disciples are struggling to have faith in him. And as I say, it's reminiscent of that moment when Peter struggled to have faith in Jesus when he was walking on the water recorded for us in Matthew 14. Jesus is out uh, one night walking on the water of Lake Galilee, which is uh, an unusual thing to be doing. But when you're Jesus, you can do these things. And he approaches his disciples in a boat and they see him and they think he's a ghost. But eventually they realize it's Jesus. And he calls out, he calls out to them. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, call me and I'll come and meet you on the water. So that's exactly what happens. Peter gets out of the boat, Matthew tells us. He walks on the water and he comes towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. On that occasion, just as he does here, Jesus focused on Peter's lack of faith. He said to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Friends, I'm becoming more and more convinced that God wants to do wonderful things through his people. But the thing that prevents it from happening in many cases is that we fail to believe that that God really is willing to work with us and work through us. We look at the task of, of sharing the gospel with a particular person or the challenge of showing Christ's love to our neighborhood around the church here, and we think it's impossible. We just don't think it can be done. We don't trust God, or at least, many of us, I think, would would say something along these lines. I believe that God can do anything. But I don't believe that he'll do it through me. In both of these scenarios where Jesus challenges the disciples for their lack of faith, it's because they, they lack belief that Jesus will work through them. 
So long as we fail to trust God, we limit what God can do through us. So Jesus has been honest with his disciples here. He said, listen, fellas, the problem here is that you you struggle to trust me. You struggle to believe. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to inspire them with a vision of what life could be like if only they began to trust him and believe. He says, if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Fellas, if you had only the tiniest amount of faith in me, a mustard seed, that's the smallest thing we can think of. If you had only the tiniest amount of faith in me, I could use you to do incredible things. Your, your faith would grow. Your capacity to do the things that I call you to do would grow. I could use you quite literally to turn the world upside down. Folks, you may or may not be familiar with how the story ends for these disciples of Jesus. What Jesus predicted here is precisely what happened. They didn't. They didn't speak to a mountain and find that it moved from one place to another. They did something far greater than that. This, this failing, faithless, bungling bunch of disciples within the next generation changed the face of the Roman Empire. They began to believe that Jesus, by his Spirit, would work through them. And they changed the known world of their day. God did use them to turn the world upside down. Friends, if only we could believe, if only I could believe, and we do it together. When we're faced with an overwhelming situation like a person who we think will never respond to Jesus, a community that needs to see the kingdom of God in action, but but we hardly even know how to step out through the doors, Whenever we're faced with those kind of scenarios, what we tend to do is we work out how we can try harder or become more skilled or improve ourselves, our gifts. But Jesus, he says something different. He says, learn to believe in me. Learn to believe that you can do anything that I want you to do in my name. Nothing is beyond you if it's the thing that I've called you to. I'll make you able to do it. Folks, I think a passage like this can raise as many questions as it answers. Maybe like me, you wonder about the relationship between faith and healing. Jesus tells his disciples that they couldn't heal because they lacked faith. Are we supposed to deduce from that that as followers of Jesus Christ, we would be able to heal people if only we had the right amount of faith? Well, if you take a more comprehensive look 
at, at this scenario and the conditions uh, uh, surrounding it. I think we'll, we'll have a, a more uh, mature understanding of that question. Firstly, this, this took place at a particular time in Jesus' ministry where, where using miraculous signs was part of his way of demonstrating God's kingdom in action. Secondly, these, these disciples, these apostles, they had that specific commission from Jesus. We saw it in chapter 10, verse 1. He told them to go and, and heal the sick and raise the dead. Not each one of us shares that, that specific commission. Thirdly, the, the recipient of the healing had faith. The, the father of this boy, he came uh, with faith. Uh, and Jesus' healing miracles often and almost always had that quality where there needed to be faith on the part of the recipient. And fourthly, it was clearly God's will that this boy in this case should be healed. And so Jesus went on to do it. When all those other conditions were present, Jesus singles out the lack of faith of the disciples and says, listen, fellas, the only thing missing here was your, your faith. If you'd had faith, you would have been able to heal the boy. I suppose when we look at an incident like this, I used to read an incident like this and wonder whether I would have had faith had I been in the disciples' shoes. Could I have helped this demon-possessed boy? It's hard to know, but I think in the long run that that's a, a question we don't really need to answer. In the end, that's not our concern. God's calling on us is specific to this time and this place, and we're confronting different challenges What I need to think about and what we need to think about together is this. Do we believe that God is willing to work through us here and now? Could he use us to bring real help to real people with real problems? Could we help some of the older members of this community who live nearby who feel extremely isolated and vulnerable in their homes. Could we do that? Could we offer support to young families who are living on the brink as they struggle to bring up their young children? Could we make a difference to that person who's been coming here repeatedly looking for help with their grocery bill? Can we help that person who came this week to see if something could be done about a a drastic domestic situation? Do we believe that God is able to do that kind of stuff through us? In East Belfast in 2009. Do we trust him? Do we believe? (coughs) 
As we come to the end of our time in this passage, I'd like you to notice one last thing. Jesus insists again that we keep the main thing, the main thing. In verses 22 to 23, straight after he's performed a healing miracle, Jesus says the Son of Man's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. To those disciples standing before him, and to the church of today, Jesus says, by all means, grow in your capacity to bring healing into the lives of the people around you. That's precisely what I want you to do. That's where I want you to learn to trust me. That's the work I've called you to. But remember this. I came to heal people entirely. I won't be content ever to bring physical or or situational healing to people while they're still sick in their sin. Even the healthiest men and women, the most affluent people, they're still dying if they're lost in their sin. They're separated from God. I've come to heal that illness and disease among all others. I've come to save them. Never, ever forget. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the beautiful message at the core of the Christian gospel that you want sick people well. You want to see their sins forgiven and their lives restored in every way. Lord, thank you that Jesus came into this world for that very reason to save us from our sins. Lord, thank you too for the privilege that you've given us to work alongside you in bringing healing into this world. Lord, would you help us now to believe that you will do this work through us? Lord, give us just a speck, just a tiny amount something to begin with, something that might grow. A sense that you are working in us and through us. Lord, we offer our unbelief to you. We pray that you would come and and plant a mustard seed of, of trust and of confidence deep within us. Help us to believe that you are at work in this world and that you will work through us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.